Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe, and this is episode 20. Joining us today for this artificial milestone is a guest that's been 19 episodes in the making. Everybody, please welcome this week's guest host body, my old friend and writing partner, Rick Todd Johnson. Rick, how's it going? Hey, hey. Oh, doing well. How are you doing down there? Doing, oh yes, doing good. You've had me attached to your ankle. It was a, a yes. Well, we had we had to maintain a, a six foot distance. Yeah. For uh, COVID, so this was like the best way to do it. The only way to do it, really. So, how are things going up there? How's the weather? Uh, it's pretty nice up here. I don't know how it is down by my feet, but uh, up here, I mean, I try. You know, I try to keep things clean, but mm -hmm. uh, up here, I'm doing dandy. Yeah, it's a little humid. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it would be a little humid. Yeah, I've been. You know, I was walking a lot before you. You know, before we went on air. I was pacing back and forth a lot, so. So a little peek behind the curtain here. This is our, our second attempt at this episode, at this discussion. So hopefully it doesn't come across as too disjointed, but we had some recording problems on my end because I'm going to take all the blame for it. I'm something of an idiot. Well, um, I would agree with that. No. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, it was just- Both a, the blame and the status. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. How generous. Yeah, no problem. Well, I'm very generous. Yes. So the, the audio just turned out unusable. I might have been able to massage it into something that was listenable, but it, even in a fixed state, it was not sounding good. And so made the decision and we're going to do this again. I had to be reattached to Rick's ankle here. Luckily, the scar hadn't healed yet. It was only a few days. And so it was just a quick you know plug in. But here we are. We're talking about the first movie and hopefully everything goes well this time. I'm I'm. I'm constantly checking to make sure everything is working. All the equipment is recording. Hopefully the conversation works, you know, works out. Hopefully everything works out this time. Well, I hope so too. Okay. Yeah. Let's go into it. I guess we, we can just dispense with any of the preamble here. We'll just go right into it with our note. Our note was movie set madness. And so we picked a couple of movies about chaos and madness on a movie set. The stipulation was that all or at least a major part of the film had to actually take place on a film set. And so we picked our two movies. We're going to be right back with our discussion of the first movie. Hell's a poppin', oh Satan's on a tear. Hell's a poppin', they're screaming everywhere. She's an eternal and thought of hell. Anything can happen and it probably Humor now, how it will wind up, no one can tell. The hell's a pop and life. 
Pills a Poppin', adapted by the comedy duo of Olsen and Johnson from their own wildly popular Broadway stage production, is a gag a second comedy film where absolutely no cinematic rules are unbreakable. Sight gags, movie spoofs, musical numbers, dance numbers, door slamming farce, fourth wall breaking, and screwing with the actual film reel itself, this movie does everything, and often within the same 30 second time span. Now, this is a movie I, I knew of Hell's a Poppin' as an adjective more than actual movie itself for years. I, I think I might have read it in like a Leonard Malton movie guide uh, as just he described a movie as a Hell's a Poppin' style. And I think at the time I thought Hell's a Poppin' was just a, a slang term or a descriptor that he was just describing something as kind of like, I, I mean, I got the idea that the word sounds this way, but it also through context clues, it meant kind of manic and uh, cartoonish and just crazy. And it, I, it was years before I found out that it was an actual movie. And I think I think even like like through things like Oingo Boingo, and I know John, Joe Dante is a big fan of this movie. He's mentioned it a lot. I, I don't know exactly when I realized it was a movie, but it wasn't until moving down here, I found it was on YouTube and I was, I, I was just so excited to finally see this movie. So I've seen this movie a few times now. I know you're much more familiar with it. And this is a movie that I like, I think I like at this point more every time I see it. I, I find it funnier every time. But before we get into our full discussion, how about you? What's your history with this movie? Um, my history with the movie is I saw it way later in my life than I wished I had. Because I had originally heard about the show, not the movie itself. Um, back when I was a kid, I was like obsessed with uh, Jerry Lewis. And, uh, and I watched every, every year I watched his telethon from the start of it early in the morning to all the way into the early morning hours the next day. I would watch the entire telethon. My mom would let me do that. One year, like when I was around like 12 or so, there were all these references on the broadcast to Hell's a Poppin' because Jerry Lewis was going to be taking the show, the old show, uh, which I did not know was an old show at the time. He was going to be doing a new review of it, touring the United States and eventually ending up on Broadway. And so they were talking about it on the broadcast. And I was like, what's this hell's a poppin', hell's a poppin'? And I just thought it was the coolest word. And I would like say it, like for the next year, I was like saying it all the time around the house and getting in trouble for saying it. You know, you know my mom was like, oh, you know, you know, don't say that. My dad would get mad at me. And then I, I guess the show itself, the Lewis's version of it was a big flop. It never made it to Broadway. It died on the road. You know, I, I didn't hear about it for years, but I remember that word, you know, hell's a pop. That's how it came into my, you know, into my language. But I did not see the movie until like maybe 20 years later, you know, and just kind of ran into it, you know, uh, you know, on uh, um, broadcast on television. So, uh, um, you know, one of those kind of, in the early wee hours on some channel, I just ran into it. I was like, I've never seen this before. And, you know, so, and of course I've loved it ever since. I feel like we should get right into the movie, but I also want to just mention about that Jerry Lewis review. In On one hand, he seems like a pretty good fit for this style. But on the other hand, it, it seems so specific to this duo that it, I, I kind of can't imagine somebody else coming oh. and doing this, this shtick. I guess he'd probably be bringing his own, you know, stuff well, as well. The, the, the style of the show is very vaudeville. And I think any two comedians could do a lot of this shtick. I don't think it's really specific to Olsen and Johnson. When you watch the film, I don't think they're 
it's not like oh, so it's not it's not like the Marx Brothers, where the Marx Brothers all had a, a specific character that they that they did, you know, and everything was tied around these characters. Olson and Johnson are just Olson and Johnson; they're just two guys, and they don't really put on accents. They don't really they just talk like two you know two wise guys basically. And I think any two vaudevillian actors could have done probably similarly well in this situation. I mean, not not to, it's not to put these guys down; they're great. You know, they're terrific comedians, but I, I don't think this is so material specific as it is just more of a more of an attitude, more of a, you know, the it's just we're going crazy on this in the show. and We're just going to do everything we can, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But I, I, I'm trying to see his attitude or his style in the 70s like this, this translated yeah it doesn't it doesn't suit 70s jerry you know no but also a 1970s style or or like sensibility doesn't seem to really fit with this either because it is it is very much as you said vaudevillian and the film is very much like of its time even though i think it's way ahead of the curve like there's some stuff that i've seen i saw in this movie that frankly really surprised me because I wouldn't have expected them to be experimenting in this way in their early 40s and yet they were and quite successfully maybe that just speaks to my (laughs) my inexperience with the films from the 30s and 40s I've seen quite a few but obviously there's a ton more that I'm unfamiliar with talking about Hell's a Poppin you're kind of tempted to just talk about your favorite bits in the movie because it, it is like I called it gag a second. And sometimes it's like multiple gags are squeezed into the same shot, the same frame. And it's just like, there, there are running jokes. There are non sequiturs. I said, they play with the film itself. The- oh, I think it's important. To, I think it's important to kind of impart just how the film is structured slash not structured. I mean, it's yeah because before you can really get into the stuff, you should really, should really say, how many layers this film has because it from the start it it takes it starts in one place and within like two minutes it's in another place and within two minutes it's in another place and sometimes it's even shorter than that i mean it it constantly flows in and out of reality and real i mean you're not even in reality to begin with (laughs) you're in this you know you're you're on the set of a musical and the ground breaks away under the performers and they all end up in hell. Describing the first five minutes of this movie sounds like something that you, that would be almost its entire an entire movie itself. Like it's there's so much incidence that happens in it. Do you want to continue? I mean, I, you were doing pretty good. All the performers who are on stage end up in hell, and then there's like a series of rather dark gags that take place in hell. Really, um, really dark. Like like demons putting you know men and women in in and like oil barrels and then stamping them canned guy and canned gal you know and and then and then rolling them off and putting them on a big pile there's the uh the lady uh, the, the guy screaming for his mom no he because he she's calling for her baby and this grown man that's what it is that's- this grown man calls out mother and then he's up on a higher platform and he jumps down and breaks through it's black and white so there's a huge spurt of dark liquid coming up and it's immediately, my mind was thinking, this is Evil Dead style 
gallons of blood <laughs> that are shooting up after this guy. <laughs> and somebody else goes up to it and says, oh, we struck oil. But that line still does not do away with the impression. Your perception. That, yeah. It doesn't do away with the immediate impression that you're just seeing like geyser of blood shoot up out of the floor. But in 1941, they would not have thought geyser of blood. Okay. Well, probably not. I mean, we're, we're thinking of it because we're used to movies where there are geysers of blood. Nobody ever saw a movie with geysers of blood in 1941. Not even in a Dolly film. So it's like, yeah. uh, I think at the time audiences were, I mean, the, the gag is really fast. Like, oh, he struck oil, you know? Yeah, so I don't you're think probably there's right. A, you know, yeah, so I, I don't think that's meant to be the impression at all. I think it's just like, he struck oil. So from there, they walk off of the set. They walk, you know, they basically walk out of camera frame and reveal that they're on a set with a director who is trying to film a version of Hell's a Pop in their Broadway sta uh, stage show. And they're having an argument about how much they're going to change. He introduces them to the writer, played in a very small role by Elisha Cook Jr. A hilarious role. He's really, I mean, he's underplaying, obviously, because he's just like so, he's like anemic as hell. But it, it's like, he's, yeah, he's really good in this talker. Movie. He's so good. <laughs> Yeah, he's only in it a couple of scenes, a couple of uh, moments, but he's, I mean... Here and later at the end, yeah. Yeah, and he's hes the writer, and the director is walking them, then begins walking them through the love story that they want to turn the anarchic Hells of Poppin' show into. He sits them down, there's some gags, there's some really good gags. Like I said, I just want to talk about the gags. We can come back and circle around to those. But he sits them down, and he puts up sure. a photo of the movie that they're going to make and then the photo starts moving and the, they're watching the movie that they are shortly going to appear in and commenting on it and talking to the actors yeah because misha hour shows up and they interacting with him. yeah they insult him and he kind of gives a look to the camera or the you know it, it's yeah. very um like this movie breaks the fourth wall like immediately yeah uh, immediately and then they show up in the film and the two of them comment and like oh look there we are it's very bizarre, and I believe um, in our previous conversation, you pointed out that it, like it was pre-MST3K almost, that, that style of them sitting there pointing at the screen and talking. Yeah, because they start insulting themselves on the screen. At one point, they're yelling at themselves on the screen, and, they're, and, they're, and the screen cells are yelling back at them. This is later in the film, but, but at one point, um, Johnson, like, he, he insults the guy on the screen, uh, himself on the screen, and his screen self says, you're a barrel-wasted weasel, <laughs> which is my favorite line from the film. So very short order, the movie then just takes the perspective of that film within a film. And it, it never quite breaks out of that in the same way, but it does continue breaking out. Because we haven't even mentioned that Shemp Howard is up in the projection booth. Like they're talking to him in the projection booth every once in a while. As he yeah, is up there, slowing down the film to, or moving, he keeps moving the viewpoint of the camera somehow within the projector. Yeah, you know? he's, he's like he sees a beautiful a... woman and he wants to focus on her at one point, and he's like, "Move over here, over here, move the camera," you know. It's like, and he's the projectionist; he's not even the cameraman. You know? Yeah, so, well, it, what is reality in this movie? It's great. No, no, that's just it. It's great. It, it, and and he's. Distracted the whole time by this this woman that he has in the booth with him, and so he and he's angry about getting interrupted, you know. Yeah, and if this sounds like we're all over the place, this movie is 
it, it, all it over you, yeah it is all over the place but it never gives you a moment to stop and think about it like it is just it is just joke 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 and they're layered so well and we like we just mentioned a minute ago mst3k i already mentioned joe dante and oingo boingo what's the oingo boingo connection because i don't well like uh forbidden zone is a very like kind of hell's a pop style movie yeah i don't i don't i don't see that i think forbidden zone is way more structured than you're giving it credit yeah it for. is i think forbidden but, zone is way more fleischer you know okay. fleischer loop cartoons than it is anything oh well that that may be true but i i see a certain spiritual connection between the style of forbidden zone and hell's a poppin even though it isn't the gag a minute it definitely has i think, it, I think it occupies the same area but i'd say the focus of forbidden zone is about 10 years earlier Okay. Okay. Well, I was going to say what one thing when I saw this, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but when I saw this for the first time, it was amazing to me just to see how many, like how many connections there were, or or, or not like uh, not specific connections, but how it just seemed to occupy a space that was part like Warner Brothers cartoon and like you know classic Vaudevillian comedy. To I agree with that. You yeah. even up to you know through like comedy history up to MST through K, and it's not quite like a Rosetta Stone of comedy or weird comedy, but it it, it it kind of like opened up a new area for me, or was kind of like seeing something like oh this is something that such and such was inspired by, or, or you know yeah I'd say the Rosetta Stone is more duck soup than anything, but okay. you know, it's... so in this opening scene before we get into the regular plot, you've got the director there. There's no plot. Oh, well, there is kind of a plot in the movie within a movie within a movie. Like once you get a couple of layers deep, there is a plot. <laughs> there's a there's a little bit of a plot, but they don't really care how it comes out. They <laughs> it just kind yeah. of derails. You can't be derailed if you're not railed to begin with. So Okay, that's true. I guess the movie like the new the movie never bothers getting on the rails in the first place. But, <laughs> no, it does not. Like so, the director is walking them through as they're talking. He, they're, he's walking through them through a bunch of sets. There's an introduction here of a couple of running jokes that I think you were, you and I were both a little bit confused. Not confused, but we're like, I certainly didn't quite understand if there was more to them than what just appears. The woman that's yelling Oscar all the time. I kept. Yeah, the thinking, Oscar. Thing, I I feel like there's a deeper joke there that maybe we're not privy to in this day and age um i kept waiting so yeah there's, there's a woman who runs around constantly yelling for her husband and his name is oscar and she interrupts like scene after scene after scene yelling oscar and at one point they even shoot her you know and so she goes away for a while but she comes back later but she just runs around and it's a it's a it's a shtick it's some shtick that's from the show from the original show and i just imagine she was running through the audience yelling oscar all the time and i don't know i'm i've yet to find an explanation of why it's oscar um i thought i thought it would have been clever for there at some point to have been a joke about the academy awards but there's not there's no payoff to it because i mean if you yelled oscar in a bob hope movie bob hope would be talking about how he never won one yeah he eventually did but um but you know that was you know that would have been a running joke or something like that but here it's just it's just her yelling oscar <laughs> you never see her husband you know i mean it's there's well, no payoff 
do it. It's not really. I wondered about that. I had to look up because I couldn't remember what year the Academy Awards started or when they started calling it Oscar. So I, I actually looked up to see if that would have been it. But my initial thought was that she was going to somehow dovetail that, that comedy bit was going to dovetail with the man who's carrying around the plant and who's also- um, Young Mrs. Jones, yeah. Yeah, he's yelling for Mrs. Jones and interrupting scenes. Hold well, you on. have to explain the plant because the plant starts out a tiny little plant in a tiny little pot. And then every scene where the guy shows up again yelling for Mrs. Jones, the plant is bigger and the pot is bigger. Until finally near the end of the movie, it's like a tree. <laughs> it's being wheeled around. It's this giant tree. And it's like, um, so it grows through the movie uh, to inc just increasingly huge proportions. So yeah, I just kind of kept expecting those two to, to come together, but neither of them have like a, a traditional payoff. They're just a joke that does keep escalating. And it, it's funny, it made, I mean, it makes me laugh and it does certainly add to the energy of every scene that they appear in or the, the movie as a whole. But yeah, all this is introduced here and in all this is introduced here in the beginning as they're walking through the film set, the director is explaining uh, one, of my, one of my favorite jokes in the movie is that like, it's a good script, look how heavy it is. Yeah. And they keep changing their outfits every time they're in a different set. They start out wearing suits, and then the scene cuts to the, uh, a jail, and they're wearing striped prisoner togs. And then they leave the room, and they're both dressed in like Louis the Fourteenth garb, because they're all of a sudden in, the, in, a, in Versailles. And then uh, they they enter another set, and there's an igloo, and they're dressed as Eskimos. And it's just like boom, 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 you know, really fast. And maybe the most obvious film. <laughs> like uh, pop culture reference in this movie when they pass a sled that says Rosebud on it. And he says to the, he turns to the camera and says, I thought they burned this thing. And that would be current then because this is the same year as Citizen Kane. Was it? 41, okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That would have been a very occurrent reference there. That was of the moment. Yeah. Which is great. You know, because I, lo I love when stuff like that, you know, when there's kind of jokes like that in the comedy that are, I, and something I always like, I just always loved about 30s and 40s comedies when they make reference to things of the era, you know, where they talk about, you know, politicians or 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 other actors in other movies and stuff. I just it's just something I've always really enjoyed, and mainly because it, it's how I learned about other comedians of the era and um, and singers and things like that. I mean, I, mean, I love when films make reference to the times. This movie is one that I kind of wish there was an annotated guide to this oh so i i or a commentary a dvd which you know would be lovely yeah because this is almost almost a lost movie it is available but it's not really officially available that, I, would, I would murder for a joe dante commentary on this film well not only that but i would love a commentary or a commentary i would like uh i would love an official release for this I would love almost a pop-up video style like track yeah. to this movie where they're playing it and they're just popping up saying, oh, this is a reference to whatever. Something like Hell's a Poppin', which is like, you know, at this point, 80 years old. <laughs> um, um, it might help, you know. Well, I mean, as much research as you want to do on a movie, this one's really hard to research because there's not a lot of information out there about it. 
Which is strange for a movie that it feels so major. Like it's actually, it's not like, uh, it's not like this was a, it was a universal movie. release. Yeah, like I was gonna say, it's not like it's a like a cheapy like B picture. This was a, a major release, and it it's kind of gone, and I couldn't find any real reason for why it's so unavailable. I guess we we should talk a little bit about that because this movie you can find a copy on YouTube that is of a decent quality. It looks and sounds fine. There's also a DVD that you can get pretty cheap on Amazon. I think we both have the same release. That looks fine as well, but it but it is a burnt DVD and there's no company logo or anything. You don't know where it came from. It plays and sounds fine, but there's just no official release, at least not in America. I, I, I did see that there are releases in Europe. Right, but Universal has never released them in America on, on video. Ever. And I'm not entirely sure why. We I know we saw a reference to there being some sort of a lawsuit between the the survivors of Olson and Johnson and uh, Universal Studios about the rights um, and like royalties or something like that. But we haven't had anything actually confirmed. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know. I've never seen anything else from this pair. This is the only, th only thing I know these two from. And actually like, I, I feel bad, but I am not entirely familiar with the 30s and 40s comedy i mean i know the some of the big ones i know some of the marx brothers i know most of it yeah, yeah so. i know some of the marx brothers i know laurel and hardy and abbott and costello but i'm not like my knowledge does not run particularly deep on any of that and so i kind of wanted to talk to you about this movie because i figured you'd be able to put into context some of the other things that were going on in comedy at the time. Okay. Like just um, where this fits in the history of comedy or how, how much this stands out or how much it might also be similar to other things that were done at the time. Because I know like all, all the comedians of this era were to some extent, like to use the modern phrase or the more modern phrase meta, right? Like they all kind of looked to the camera and said stuff. But this one, the way that they they not just break the fourth wall, but they start to play around with varying levels within a frame of what's real and what isn't, or, or like that scene towards the end where the, fr the, the, film, the film gets off its loop a little bit. So the, the frame, what we're seeing is like the top of the frame and the bottom of the frame are split and they're having conversations with each other. I, I'm kind of stumbling over how to describe it. But yeah, I mean, I, I would say, the comedy stalwart that I would most think of, of of the same period, I would think would be Tex Avery, the the you know the anim, animation director for Warner Brothers and MGM. Uh, his films often did things like you know going off the rails like this and talking to the audience constantly, pulling gags where somebody you know they start yelling at somebody in the actual audience, and then somebody you see a silhouette of somebody in the audience standing up and walking out. Uh, Tex Avery pulled a lot of these same type of gags. And he also was very fond of like blackout gags in his cartoons and stuff. We're just, you know, a uh, very non sequitur type of comedy, which is what this film really is too. I mean, it's just a bunch of really, very loose disconnected gags kind of just piled up one on top of the other. And that was very much Tex Avery style. I would, I would say very much that, that if he wasn't an influence on this type of, I mean, he was definitely, 
working the same vein as Olsen and Johnson in this time. And remember Olsen and Johnson were mostly doing this on stage. And then they'd been in films before this, they'd had a, a couple of films come out, but this was their first film for universal for the, you know, this is, uh, they did a couple of, I think Paramount uh, that were not big hits, but they ended up at universal because they had the big hit with hells of Hoppin'. And so universal said, Oh, we got to make that as a movie. And then they did three other movies after this with universal three or four other movies including a movie called crazy house so two films later they did a sequel or a proto sequel uh to hell's a pop and called crazy house where they're once again in a hollywood studio trying to make a film and every, and everything all hell goes break loose all, all hell breaks loose in the way that only they can you know? so oh i was going to just interject here and i i believe we discovered that one is on the internet archive if you look up crazy house you might be able to find it yeah, archive.org uh, is where I found it. I had not seen it until uh, like December when I found it on there. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I watched it and it was just, and it's not, it's really, I, I call it a sequel. Um, they, I think they, I think they do mention Hells of Poppin' in it at one point, but you know, but it was mostly, mostly in the vein of, oh, those guys are back. Oh my gosh, ah, I run screaming out of the studio, that sort of thing. Um, otherwise it's really totally disconnected. I mean, in the way you would expect from them, because the way they work is they, they're, they're, they're not, they're not waiting around for you to catch up. They're just forging through another 90 minutes, you know? So you, it, it's a sequel, but it's really not. A sequel. To kind of circle back to what I was asking as well is their experimentation in this movie. I mean, I, I think I've already said this, but I'm serious when I say it, it kind of blew my mind because I was not expecting how much they do and how how much they not only like break the fourth wall but just how much they play around it felt very modern like this movie is 80 years old and there are jokes that i think would be clever in a movie that came out last year like if i had seen it there are things that they do in this like 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 messing with the film frame talking to the audience and the projectionist and the varying levels of reality within this movie how how it just keeps going a little bit deeper into a movie within a movie into a play. Yeah. How, how, like how groundbreaking was that at the time? Cause to me, it felt like I've never seen anything like this in a movie before, especially a movie from this period. Well, I don't know. Have you seen Sherlock jr? Oh yes, of film? course. Like that's, that would be an obvious precedent. Yeah. That's, that's 1924. And okay. they were already doing things like that there. So, and, well, and yeah, I know. You know where he walks, you know, he walks into and out of a movie screen. I mean, it's like, you know. So, I mean, this, there have been variations on, you know, it just depends on how far you're going to take it, you know. But I would say in its time, this was pretty groundbreaking. I mean, obviously it had taken Broadway by storm. It was, a, it was at the time, that it was on Broadway, it was the longest running Broadway show in history. I mean, that record's been broken many, many, many times by many musicals by this point. But um, at, at, in 19, in, by 1941, it was the longest running Broadway show. It, it had like 1400 performances or something like that. So it was a huge deal. Uh, and then making a film of it was like a no brainer. The only problem is how do you make a film, a, a stage show that's just basically a, a jumble of just assorted nuts and bolts how do you make that into a film well the 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 fact of the matter is you really don't 
you just kind of do a version of it. You know, you don't really try to remake what was done on stage because this this movie has a bunch of songs in it, but none of those songs are in the musical. <laughs> so are actually in the stage version. And uh, and for the same matter, only Olsen and Johnson and uh, uh, the Lindy Hopper dancers that are from the stage show are in this movie. Nobody else connected with the stage version is in this film. I remember hearing about that or reading a bit about that. It is interesting to me that of everything in the show, it's the Lindy Hoppers that that made it in. It's an amazing scene, but it seems for a movie that is full of non sequiturs and digressions, this one is notably out of nowhere. That all of a sudden it, it they're they're given over to this dance scene, which is incredible. It's great. Like I'm really glad they kept it in. It must have been yeah. There there are other there are other musical numbers in the film before that and after. But this one is completely different from those other ones. I well, mean, this is, is this only... this is like rock and roll, and you know, this is pre rock and roll, rock and roll, and uh, and this um, is actually the oh. sorry, this is I believe the only one that it, it does not feature any of the main cast. Like all the other songs are sung by cast members. It's part of the the story within right. or part of the quote unquote plot line, and then this is just. One, it's the only African-Americans in the film and they're all, and okay, sadly, they're just stereotypically just playing, you know, janitors and maids and chefs, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're work, they're working uh, craft services basically on, on the film. They're kind of like taking a break and they just kind of break into, 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 well, they start doing a little jazz imp improvisation on pots and pans and things like that. And then it turns into a huge dance number. The maids come in and join them. And they start dancing wildly. One of the dancers is uh, named Norma Miller. And she, believe it or not, just died last October. And she was, uh, I think, 98 years old. Um, and she was actually incredibly famous by the age of 13 she's one of the lindy hoppers in this film and she was she was in the stage version as well um and was just a hugely successful dancer throughout her career um danced with like just every major outfit even recorded a, an album of music last year at the age of 98 that has oh, I, wow. I think it's set to be released actually i don't think it's but she did like a new jazz album or something like that so um uh but yeah um that was something interesting to find out is like i was wondering wondering if anybody from this film was actually still alive and there was at least norma miller so <laughs> well the scene is great and they don't interact with anybody the most interaction is olsen and johnson and um uh, what's his name is it robert page at that point is it jeff yeah yeah. So they applaud and there's the remark is made, hey, that were they were pretty good. We should or too bad we couldn't find a place for him in the movie. Oh, uh, maybe in the next one. Yeah, maybe the next one. Yeah. <laughs> the, reason, <laughs> the reason they don't interact with anybody, and it's really its own scene that comes out of nowhere, is because uh unfortunately that scene would have been cut for some particularly southern markets that would not have been okay with the, the movie being handed over to a group of african-americans at the time which is a bit of a bummer yeah it would have been a race cut yeah those musical numbers on my latest viewing because i've seen this now uh four or five times i think um i found myself getting a little bit impatient with some of the musical numbers even though they're they're by and large pretty good but i might have been misreading this but my my read on it when i was watching it is 
it was like a, it was almost a studio note, like the studio mandated. We've got to have, uh, we've got to have a love story and musical numbers in here. Yeah. I felt like the musical numbers were kind of interrupting the zaniness of the rest of the movie, even though they overlay as much of that zaniness, zaniness as possible in the musical numbers with cute title cards coming up on screen that are speaking directly to audience members. Yeah, but they're, they're painting on the screen as they talk about the house they're going to build and they're in their love song. And they actually, you know, so there, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on, even while they sing the, what I would call the popcorn song, which is, you know, the, the boring, the boring song in the movie where you go out and get popcorn <laughs> during the film. <laughs> um, that's, that's what we called it when we were kids. But um, uh, that, that, that it's kind of a popcorn song, even though I think the song's actually pretty lovely. Yeah. So they do stuff to keep your visual interest while they're singing their, their little ode to love. I, I just want to step in here and kind of defend the, the, the music a little bit because um, a huge portion of the film that we haven't even we haven't even said her name yet, but it's Martha Ray, who is yeah. You know, I was trying to I was trying to get into talking the, about her, <laughs> the great the great stage comedian and 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 movie comedian also. She was terrific in this film. She is essentially the female lead of the film and really has about half the screen time. So she's she's in a massive portion of this film, and and is mostly chasing around Misha Hour, trying to trying to trying to get him at, you know to be her man, and uh, of course he's having none of it because it's Martha Ray, <laughs> um, the the famous Big Mouth. I was and, uh, I gotta tell you, like I I was not very familiar with Martha Ray. I kind of looked her up afterwards and was like, oh, I, I think I I might have seen some stuff with her. But I, I was a little bit bummed out on, especially in repeated viewings, how much unfair body shaming humor is, is thrown at her. That, like, she's basically man crazy and all the men are completely... Oh, a lot. A lot. With her. Yeah. Yet she's, I mean, she's perfectly attractive and she's got so much energy. Well, it's because there are, she does, but there are far more, you know, traditionally beautiful women surrounding her. So... Of course, they're not going to, you know, they're going to want to go for the other ones and not her. I mean, that's just, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Watching it. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, I think she's terrific. You know, she got married seven times. So, you know, it's it's not like she was hurting for men in her life. I mean, I know she had a lot of emotional turmoil, you know, in her life, but she was she was not hurting for attention. But it was a running gag in a lot of films in which she's in is that you know, she's kind of the ugly duckling, you know, at the party. So, uh, so there is a lot of body shaming going on, you know, and, or, but at the same time, she, she just kills her songs. She's so good in the film. And yeah. Cause she, she got, I think she gets like three songs in the film and she just, you know, is just terrific at all of them. Yeah. Martha Ray was great. She's very funny in this movie. She's very energetic. She really like kind of holds up everything that she's in. Like, I think she carries her scenes for, you're right. Having so much screen time. I, I only found it a bummer because I like her character a lot. And then I was like, oh man, why why are why is everybody so mean to her? That was also her that was also her on stage persona. And I mean it was just kind of the, the thing she did. I mean, it was, you know, of course she's not gonna be the prettiest girl there, but she was also able to laugh at herself, that sort of thing. Though I, I'm sure that I'm sure it hurt deep inside, but you know, she that's how she made her bread and butter. You mentioned really br briefly there. Uh, Misha Auer, who she is pursuing in this movie. And in one of those jokes that for, like, I certainly didn't get it until I was reading about this movie. Uh, one of those jokes that would benefit from having an annotated version. Misha Auer is playing 
a fake Russian nobleman, Pepe, who is actually a real Russian nobleman, but he doesn't want anybody to know. He wants everybody to think he's right. making it, which is a re reference to... It was well, a, restaurant, a restaurant owner in Hollywood. Who, yeah, who told everybody that he was of Russian noble descent, but everybody kind of knew it was, it was just an act. He was just faking it. Hollywood was rife with, with characters who were posing as people that they weren't. Um, I mean, Fritz Lang and Eric von Stroheim certainly made a lot of mileage out of being Prussian, you know, not Russian nobleman, but like being Prussian authoritarians or, you know, I mean, it was like when, you know, they, they did a lot of, of posing and being, you know, bigger than they really were and all that stuff. And, and, and there were, I think Misha Auer played a couple other similar characters in films where he was, um, where, where he, where he played uh, people of varying heritage who, you know, were kind of posers, you know? So, I mean, Misha Auer made a lot of money doing things like that. So, I mean, going back for about 10 years, up to that point it was kind of a running gag you know oh okay so i i just assumed it was a, a reference to the um the restaurant owner. it is a reference it is a specific reference to a certain person in this film but I was, what i was saying is misha hour had made other films where he kind of played kind of sleazy kind of characters who weren't really who they were purporting to be you know okay. so i mean it was just kind of his his character stock and trade Put on the put on the crazy accent and be somebody you're not, you know. So there's a there's a few levels to the joke then. Yeah, very much so. It was it was actually kind of an archetype of the period of 30s and 40s comedy is is you know the 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 sleazy kind of sleazy continental, you know. Yeah. Huh. And that all the women would nod for, and he's just trying. He's on the make for for dough or something like that, you know. So in in, in the uh, final sequence of the film. There's a, uh, or not in the, in the final section of the film, not the final sequence. Uh, there, Arthur Ray gets thrown from the stage by Misha Auer into the audience uh, in kind of wild circumstances. And um, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Frankenstein's monster shows up in the audience and, and asks Martha Ray if he can help her. And he throws her back on stage. <laughs> And uh, the person playing Frankenstein's monster is a stuntman named Dale Van Sickle, who is in a whole bunch of films, usually, you know, unrecognizable. He's just doing his stunt work and stuff, stunt doubling. But by putting on the Frankenstein's makeup in a universal film, he became the first actor to actually play Frankenstein's monster after Boris Karloff. Yeah, it's a neat little bit of trivia in this movie as well. There's actually a couple more people I want to uh, mention here. Hugh Herbert. The woo-woo guy uh, who's, uh, who plays the uh, sort of detective in the film I was, slash magician. Um, his role seems the most nebulous to me out of everybody's. Like, it I'm is not, because it's all over the place. I'm not yet quite he's sure what like, he's supposed to be. <laughs> but he's he's the fourth lead of the film, basically. I mean, he's he's he has a lot of scenes. He's involved in almost everything. And he just shows up and just says really nonsensical things and, you know, drops a pot, you know, gets a pot dropped on his head. He has all sorts of stuff happen to him. Um, he shoots and, some arrows at our, our main cast. Oh my gosh. The arrow scene, the incredible arrow scene, still trying to find out how they did that, in, that arrow scene. If you have not seen this, it's wild. It's almost wilder than the rest of the film. There's, 
at, at one point, by the end of the arrow, the bow and arrow scene, Martha Ray is standing up against a target and she has about 50 arrows shot at her <laughs> and they all, and they land all around her. And if you can figure out how they actually did that, I, 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 I will be astounded because it's still, I, I, I thought maybe it was running in reverse. Like maybe they, 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 they filmed it in reverse and then ran it forward, but she's actually talking during the scene. And it does not look like they like dubbed over her or anything like that. And it's not just her in the scene. There's another, uh, another actor in the scene also. And it's like, it's just astounding to me that they would just have a bunch of people off stage firing arrows at her, uh, unless it was wires or something like that. I don't know, but yeah, I, it's pretty astounding how. I don't think it's actual wires. Cause they don't, they don't move like they're just on a wire. They certainly move like straighter and faster than, than that. I, I didn't know if maybe it was just that they like they had a, a trick target that kind of shot the arrows out. So it just happened so quickly. Your eyes. Kind yeah, of, I thought about that, too, but it doesn't look like it. I know it's it, yeah, I didn't. It was certainly like funny and impressive looking, but I didn't look close enough to see if that's what it was. So I, I just wanted to bring up really quick because I, I was looking at IMDb for this movie that I just found it kind of humorous that there is a goofs section for this movie, partly because when I saw there were goofs and it was a continuity goof, I was kind of like, well, how can you tell what's a continuity goof and what is them just either intentionally not caring or intentionally just being like, uh, like we're gonna change one thing. Um, like one of them uh, in the movie, Betty picks up a rifle with a bayonet attached, but in the next shot, it's a double barreled shotgun. Like everything changes every time the camera moves something is <laughs> so how do you know what's a goof or not so i just discovered while we were talking i just discovered that this film has a connection to david bowie oh i want to hear in the lindy hop scene in the film actually probably before the lindy hop scene in the uh in the in the bit where they're banging on the pots and pans and kind of doing the syncopation part uh the uh musical duo of slim and slam are in that scene. Slim is Slim Gaylard, um, who is in Absolute Beginners with David Bowie um, in the 80s. And he, uh, Slim Gaylard was a huge jazz, uh, he was just a giant of jazz. And yeah. he's the guy who uh, came up with the song Flatfoot Floogie um, with the Floy Floy, um, which is very famous. Um, he, <laughs> okay. uh, he's the guy, he sings Selling Out in Absolute Beginners. I'm selling out. Um, oh, okay. It's the it's the part where uh, where Susie uh, starts uh, flirting with the other guy and stuff, and 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 kind of goes off with them, and and cheats on the hero. Um, that's uh, Slim Gaylord in that scene, and he is in this movie. So there is a connection, Kevin Bacon style, <laughs> to David Bowie. That's interesting. I I didn't I wouldn't have realized that. That's why I have you. Uh, that's why I have you here. To talk about this movie. I yeah, I, I just went. I, I just I was while we were while we were talking. I'm looking at this going. Holy crap, that's Slim Gale. <laughs> so if if I can't get an annotated version of this movie, the closest I can get is talking to you about it. There you go. I honestly could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. So you know. Do you have anything more that you want to say before I kind of like I, I bring it to a close here? Uh, there is there's one thing that I just was just thinking of the last time I watched it is the song when they get to the big stage show at the end of the show they get to the song waiting for the Robert E. Lee. And I have to say, 
when that comes up and I haven't, and I, when it comes up and I haven't seen the film for a while, because I've seen so many thirties and forties musicals, when waiting for the Robert E. Lee starts, I start thinking, Oh my God, somebody's going to come out in blackface. Thankfully nobody does. Yeah. But it, I dread every time. It's like, was there a blackface scene in this movie? Or not? <laughs> Thankfully not. But, it is the sort of song that would, you know, if Judy Garland or Mickey Rooney were in this movie, you know, they'd show up in blackface, you know, it's like, uh, but thankfully, I mean, there is, there is talk in the song because of the lyrics of the song about mammies and pappies and all that stuff. So there are, I mean, you know, it's, it, the song is what it is, but um, thankfully it doesn't happen in this film. This film kind of doesn't play along racial lines like that. So. No, I, 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 I think this movie kind of, mostly escapes the problems with a lot of these early movies when you're looking at them from a modern day perspective. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best person to say that as a white man nearing middle age. I don't, I can't really say whether this would be offensive to anybody else, but I, I don't think it has a lot of those, uh, a lot of those things that make other movies of the time kind of stand out or uh, like, you know, get content warnings put in front of them these days. I think, yeah, I think, I think I already mentioned, you know, that in the Lindy Hopper scene, you know, they kind of do have the stereotypical jobs that yes. somebody that is American would have any film in the thirties and forties, but they do get a major showcase in the film, you know, and it's pretty much separate from everybody else, which is sad. I wish people, I, I wish it was more integrated into the storyline, but it was of its time. Um, I think you should just appreciate that there's this incredible dance sequence in the film <laughs> because I would hate for there not to be this sequence because the dancing and artistry is astounding. It's great. And when I look this movie up, uh, just doing a little bit more research, most of the videos on YouTube are people who have uh, have cut out the Lindy Hop scene. A lot of the articles online are about... Uh, the Whitey's Lindy Hoppers, and they're they're, con they're credited in the movie as the Kangaroo Dancers, right? Or is it the other way? Yes, around? they are. Okay. No, it's the Kangaroo. They're called the Kangaroo Dancers in the credits. Yeah. Most of the information I found was about them and their scene in this movie, uh, and people just pointing out how incredible it looks and how great it is. And there's a lot of videos on YouTube of it. So this is definitely like a standout moment. It's sad that they weren't allowed to be a larger part. I'm not actually. Do you know if they were a larger part of the stage show? Well, as I mentioned, they were the only other actors from the stage show that are in the film. I don't know how much they were in the stage show, but a Broadway version, I'm going to guess they were probably integrated more into the Broadway version. But that's just my guess, but I've never read the script, so I have no idea. I think a New York crowd, I think New York crowd would have been more accepting of them being more deeply involved in the show. Yeah. But I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess they probably just had a couple numbers in the show because the way the Broadway version would have worked is here's a musical number, here's a musical number. And it, it, then it probably got, there were probably a bunch of gags in between the musical numbers. And there were probably some gags within the musical numbers too, but I'm guessing the show itself was probably less, there was less story in it than it was just a lot of jokes and a lot of music. So I, I don't think like definitely none of the film stuff would have been in the stage version. No. Um, and I don't know, but because we don't, because we don't have the songs from the stage version in the music and in, in the film version, I have no idea how they, that all would have been incorporated. Um, I, I think it would take reading a script to find out 
one, if there really was a script <laughs> or it was just a bunch of, you know, acts one after the other. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the stage version to really say for with any authority whatsoever. To kind of wrap that up, I, I do think it is a little bit sad that they don't get um, more representation through the rest of the movie, that it, it it's sad that they were kind of relegated to a scene that could be easily removed to so as not to offend any overly racist audience members but um that their scene is is really great it is in a movie like that is basically just highlight after highlight after highlight it is a highlight among those highlights so i i think that is almost going to do it for this discussion of this movie i before we end i just want to say that if you can track down a copy of this it's super easy to find it is on youtube the DVD is of really good quality and very cheap on Amazon. I think right now it's only $6. I, I would recommend everybody watch this if you like comedy or if you have any interest in classic comedy, because it is like, it's a movie that every time I watch it, I laugh a little bit more. Maybe, you know, it's coming at you so fast. Maybe I'm able to just appreciate the jokes. Now I can, they can land, but watching it on the last time I was laughing aloud going along with it. I laugh more and more each time I watch this film. It, it, I, I think it's it's grown on me more uh, more as the years have gone by and uh, as I discover more and more about it. Even while we're talking about it, I'm discovering more. So it's it's definitely definitely going to remain in my regular loop for quite a while here. So uh, I I watch a lot of '30s comedies every year. I watch probably like easily several dozen of them. So uh, this is going to be my regular rotation. Step right up, folks. Ride the ride of the century on Eli's killer crane. The Stuntman. A man on the run. woman who had to know why. Who the hell are you? And the director who offered him a hiding place. You shall be a stuntman who is an actor, who is a character in a movie, who is an enemy soldier, who will look for you amongst all those. The stuntman. In a world where nothing is what it seems, the hardest stunt is to hold on to reality it doesn't change the fact that the man is crazy the stuntman on the run from the law for a crime we don't learn about until near the end of the film cameron played by steve railsback stumbles into a movie shoot and accidentally causes the death of a stuntman the film's director eli cross played by peter o'toole Feeling a kinship with the fugitive, hides him among the chaos of his film crew and has Cameron assume the identity of Bert, the deceased stuntman. So begins an odd battle of wills as Cameron comes to feel that Eli rescued him from the police merely to torture and then kill him. This is a movie that you're much more familiar with than I am. I think that's maybe true for both of these movies. This is your choice. But this is a, a movie I've seen a few times. I, I like it quite a bit each time. But... Well, we'll get into the conversation. I want to hear about why you chose this and what your history with it is. But I just want to say, like, and we can get into it. 
there is something a little bit, I don't know if I would say off about this movie, but there's something about it that that kind of holds me at arm's length that I, I'm, I just haven't, I feel like I haven't cracked this movie, but yes. um, you go ahead. What do you, I want to hear what you have to say about it. When, when did you first see this movie? The movie came out at just the same time that I was actually discovering Peter O'Toole as an actor. But unfortunately, I did not see this in a theater. I kind of just missed the, just kind of missed seeing it in the theater. I don't even know if it played in Anchorage uh, growing up, but I would have been about 16 when it came out. Um, and I don't, I don't really remember it being at a theater. It may have, and I just didn't notice it. And that's why I didn't see it. But I didn't really discover it until a couple years later, and it was on HBO. And I just happened to run across it. And I said, oh, it's the stuntman. And I started watching it kind of in the middle of the movie. And I was just fascinated by it. It was just so crazy. And uh, it's not like Hell's a Poppin' where it's that anything goes style. But the film drifts in and out of reality. Uh, where like you don't know what's what scene is real and what scene is a scene in the film within the film you 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 constantly lose track of what's going on as does the main character I just was fascinated by it and then eventually I saw the whole thing and then I watched it dozens of times over the next decade Um, had it recorded I recorded off of HBO I watched it over and over and over again had it on VHS proper eventually and then of course DVD and then I didn't watch it for like about 15 years or so <laughs> after I got on DVD, I kind of stopped watching it. Um, and so I, but I've watched it a lot leading into this and it was, it's been very nice getting reacquainted with the film. This is the fourth time I've seen the movie. And what you said there is spot on where the movie drifts in and out of reality in a way that even four times into it, I'm still not completely comfortable with, because I'll tell you, I feel more on solid ground with what is going on in Hell's a Poppin' than I do in The Stuntman at times. Because, yeah. because Hell's a Poppin', you realize, is a cartoon world. Like, anything can happen for a joke. And The Stuntman... You understand the rules, yeah. The Stuntman, I just don't... I don't... Even after having seen it, knowing what happens at the end, I'm not clear on what a lot of the character motivations are. Like, I don't know what's going on with Eli. Uh, there are scenes in this movie where I'm like, like that that first big stunt scene that Cameron does where he's on the roof and there's all the Nazis that he's he's playing yeah. with. Steve Railsback plays that like he's never done that before. Like he just got dropped into that scene, even though he has supposedly been practicing for it. And he's been practicing for it, but they pull a lot of tricks on. They they do. And he seems he seems so surprised by everything that I just wonder, like, well, how could they actually do a movie like this? I mean, clearly, you know, it's slipping in and out of reality and maybe we're not supposed to take it as completely literal, but it, exactly. it, I, I just, I'm, I'm watching the movie and I, I don't know what Eli is trying to do. I, I even knowing the ending of it, I'm like, well, what is he really, why is he doing this? He, he says he feels a kinship for him. He just wants to know what he did, but there's something else there that he's, he's toying with them. Maybe he just wants to have absolute power over somebody and he can hold it over Cameron knowing that he's he's a fugitive and the, the law is after him. Yeah, uh, so you you said you, you're feeling this way after four times seeing it. Try 40 times, I still have that same feeling. It's like I'm still trying to figure out a couple of the characters. Um, and this is like, I mean, 40 years later. This is literally 40 years later. 
And I'm still trying to figure out a couple of the characters where I just go, yeah, I don't get why they do that. I don't get why they do that. Why isn't this character just go do this, you know? But you can't really approach the movie that way because then you take the fun out of the movie because it's, it's, the movie is just so vibrant and the Eli Cross character is absolutely fascinating. Like Cameron's the main character and he's got, he's the one going on the journey. The poster for the film has a naked side view of Peter O'Toole with a long devil's tail sitting on a director's chair. And that is just, even though you don't see that image in the film, that's what he feels like. He feels so impish and so, you know, perverse in his actions that, uh, not that he's dirty, but that he, I mean, he is filthy mouth, but he's not doing anything, you know, for sexual, you know, satisfaction, but he gets such a kick out of the, you know, the machinations that he puts the other characters through. It's just a fascinating kind of adventure to watch, you know, in, in that regard. And I just don't get tired of it. I mean, I keep, I, so I've watched it a bunch in the last couple of months, you know, preparing for this. And it's like, I just don't get tired of it. I can just have it on all day long and still not figure out what's going on. <laughs> you know? that, that cover is great. I mean, it's a really iconic image. It's a great cover for the poster and the DVD, but the movie never settles on whether whether Cameron Peter not Cameron uh, Eli Peter O'Toole is supposed to be a a godlike or a devilish figure because he's clearly he's both yeah they get comedic like great comedic mileage out of how Peter O'Toole enters a scene frequently in this movie on a helicopter or on a crane yes. he he just yeah. kind of floats into the scene that, and in a very funny way because yeah, he's always he flies into every that power he he's always very calm but does have a very like impish twinkle in his eye i guess you could say he does look like he's there's something amusing him about everything he's frequently but he's shot. patient and he's impatient by turns yeah and he, he's frequently shot from low angles in a way that the only thing behind him that's visible a lot of the time is a, a sky. Yeah. There's no buildings or trees or people behind him. It's just like a, a blue sky. He's the only God that they have. Yeah. I, I just, he's, this, he's this the getting, Lord of all he surveyed. I will say I, we've talked before cause we watched as one of our, our virtual watches this past year here in, in quarantine, we have watched and discussed Steve reels back before. And I think in mm -hmm. our last discussion, I kind of, uh, I kind of said that I didn't really care for him. I found him to be kind of an odd presence, a little bit, certainly not flat, but it, it just, it, it, I don't know, maybe flat is the closest I can get to with my language right now, but. Yeah, I, I, I actually think he's really good in the film. His style is very kind of, kind of off kilter. It's not, he's not, he doesn't act like a, like an, your normal, you know, action hero in a film or anything like that. And he's not, I mean, he is an, he is a, an action guy in this film to a, to a certain extent doing all the stunts, but yeah, he's, he's, um, I first saw him in Helter Skelter as a kid, um, on the, the TV miniseries. And that's where he got his fame, uh, was playing Charlie Manson. Yeah. And he has those eyes and you cannot, once you've seen him play Charles Manson, you cannot separate those eyes from any other performance that he gives. And so I've seen him in other films, 
but I always, always think of Manson and I definitely think of his Manson eyes in this film. And he does use them to great effect when he gets really riled up in this film. You can see that, you know, when uh, that his anger starts really kind of boiling, I, I just immediately flash on him playing Manson. Um, but I think he's better than you might be giving him credit for. I, I don't find him flat at all. I, 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 find him actually quite nuanced in this film um and the more you watch it i think the more i like him it just sometimes he just seems like he's coming at the scene from a different angle than a lot of actors would and maybe that doesn't seem like it's you know the norm but i, I feel it's, it's actually very effective and this character is so paranoid all the time that i mean it's understandable that he, he, there's you know he's he's clearly got a lot going on he's you know on the run for a crime that we don't know about for most of the film we have no idea what he's done uh, but he's absolutely paranoid about everything and everything he, he's got the law after him and then Eli starts pulling all this crap on him and he's fallen fallen in love immediately with this rather tempestuous you know lead actress you know and so he's got a lot he's worrying about and going on but at times he's completely you know in in just elated with the life that he's he's just found and that has allowed him to escape from his previous life and so his emotions are kind of all over the place i think you see that in his performance yeah well i was going to say that that i i thought after watching it this last couple of times that i had really been underestimating him because there is such a manic intensity and just obsessive kind of craziness. And you're right, he's very paranoid. He's back from Vietnam, he's on the run. He, he starts the movie trying to lay low and the cops uh, basically like surround him and he just barely gets away. And then he stumbles onto this movie set where it seems like a stuntman, he doesn't know he's a stuntman, just somebody is trying to run him down on the road. And then as soon as that person he doesn't even see the crash. The car just disappears from his point of view because he like ducks out of the way. And when he looks around, the car's gone. You don't even hear a splash. No, it's gone off the bridge, but he doesn't know what it is. Only that suddenly he's surrounded by a lot of people and there's a helicopter and this weird, strange Peter O'Toole is staring at him. I think that's the first point where the film dips out of reality. Because remember, we're we're only seeing the story through his eyes. The next scene that you you get, or, or his next interaction with the movie, <clears throat> is that scene where they're filming the um, the bombing run on, not the bombing run, but the uh, strafing run on the beach where, uh, you know, there's a bunch right. of prosthetics and special effects to make everybody look like they're dead. And he starts to almost have kind of a non-flashback. He starts calling for a medic. And his first introduction, even with uh, Nina, Barbara Hershey, is she's this old woman who he sees falls into the falling into the water and he goes to rescue her and she pulls her face off and she's an actress that he's he recognizes from tv so he's he's completely lost from the very beginning of this yeah. movie i i never gave the intensity credit because he does come at this from so many different angles and that that energy is always just kind of bubbling under the surface where even if he doesn't like he doesn't quite explode like he does at a few points in the movie particularly the ending when we learn what his crime was that i think he he is the most uh sustained outburst that we get from him through the entire movie he's always right there on yeah. the edge and it, at a point where there are times in this movie i can't tell if his reaction is 
that he is happy or that he is very upset. <laughs> the I don't think he can either. The first couple of times I saw this, the scene where he learns how much money he's going to be making for risking his life, it, that it's it's like $600 a stunt. And he, he almost falls yeah, from the building. He's overjoyed. He's overjoyed. But the first time I saw it, he, he's just the way he's saying it. He's just like $600, $600. I thought he was upset. I thought he's like, I'm risking my life for $600. And he's getting really pissed off. Oh, that was fantastic money in 1979 when they filmed it. So Yeah. So then, and then, you know, I, I realized like, no, he's very happy. But there are times in this movie where he does stuff yeah. like that. And I, I'm still not sure. Like, I am not 100% sure whether he is pleased or displeased in some of his reactions. And you're right. He does. He does a great performance in this movie. I take back anything I said about him. He's certainly not flat or wooden. I think there's just something a little bit alien about those eyes that you brought up. There's something a little bit. His his style is a little off kilter, as I as I mentioned. He, he's he's a different sort of actor. He does take some getting used to because I know some people who really don't like him. Um, uh, but I. And I, I will say he's he's got some performances in show, some films where he's he is a little wooden and stuff because I don't think he really connects to the material. He definitely connects to the material here. This is this is his prime performance besides you know Helter Skelter. This is this is that those are his top two really. I mean, uh, um, I, I think he's just marvelous in this film, and I don't get tired of watching him in it. No, he's great. Like, just completely entertaining and magnetic every time he's on screen. I'm just like, and I think the same the same holds true for Barbara Hershey. I think she's great in this film. She's she's definitely probably in. I mean, not quite, but almost an earlier version of a manic pixie dream girl, and that might be a problem for some. But she does have a lot of agency on her own in the film, and her character exists apart from Cameron for the most part. Just she happens to have come into his life and she acts like kind of a saving thing figure for him. But I don't I wouldn't say totally because he's also paranoid about her as well. And yeah, but with, he's paranoid about everything with but, with a bit of reason because of how knocked back he was by their first meeting. Th their first meeting was uh, through no no fault of her own. But their first meeting was a lie. He was tricked. Yeah. The first time they meet. He's never sure where he stands with anybody in this movie. No, she's great. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call her a Manic Pixie dream girl, although she is kind of like... I think she is to a certain extent. Well, certainly to the extent that she seems to like, like kind of fall in love with him and be this, like, I mean, she just seems so out of his league. <laughs> like he's just this schlub who all of a sudden... Oh, a movie star is in love with him. And yet at parts of the movie, I, I I would say maybe Manic Pixie Dream Girl in that parts of this movie, I was wondering why she was okay staying with him. Like like the last scene when he he starts to basically destroy the the prop room and he's like angrily telling her the story of uh, of the crime he committed where he almost killed a cop but accidentally and um he's so he's so angry and full of rage and being very violent and he's kind of been an ass to her for a little while in the movie that i was like well what is she right. sticking around for why is she like why is she laughing and finding this delightful this this guy is clearly unhinged and even if everything works out at the end of this movie 
he's got stuff he's going to have to because work she's through. the most real thing that he's the most real thing that she's ever encountered he's not coming into her life as a part of the movies and remember she's she's got a lot of anger she she is an actress and she's becoming famous but i mean the very first scene we see her in is on a television and, and it's for a vaginal spray commercial so in the film the context of the film she's the star of the film within the film she's a she's the lead actress but she is not famous yet she's still up and coming and she's had to go through the ringer she's had to do these crappy commercials she had and there's the scene the scene about where she asked Cameron to congratulate her and he says what for the fucking scene or fucking the director and she says for fucking the director honey don't you know that's how little girls get into the movies so she's had to go through the casting couch she's had to go through a lot to get to where she is and she's still not a star she is not necessarily happy with her station in life and you get that you know in a lot of her scenes where she's she she you know she's been trying to get somewhere she's almost there she's not quite yet but you know she's had to sleep around to do it and you know i i just feel a lot of that in her performance yeah no everybody in this is fantastic i think yeah you know i think all, all three of the main leads in this do really great jobs that commercial that we see the what the douche commercial is yeah. so douche well, commercial i said vaginal spray i meant douche yeah but. okay well either way it's such an oddly filthy uh little piece of business the way that it, it is set up with the dog jumping between her legs and it's just like yes it, it's so bizarre there's a, a weird thing in this movie too that the film itself, the stuntman that we're watching, that, that it never quite lands on any one accepted reality. And I don't mean like, like it's not, I don't know what, what I'm trying, I don't want to like over, overstate that by saying that like there's different realities in this movie. I just mean, it will suddenly be dropped into scenes that are actually part of the movie they're making, but we won't realize that for a little while. Or even if we do realize it, we won't, we won't be given a scene where they're like, and action, it's just like we're suddenly in the movie. The movie itself that they're making is also really seems to be going through a metamorphosis as they're making it. And Eli really starts to push to make the movie, which is supposed to be a very searing anti-war World War One movie. He, he starts pushing it into the kind of very bizarre, a, a very heightened, maybe a yeah. little bit cartoonish routes like there's that scene yeah, where suddenly he's, he's dancing improvising and, a lot of the scenes yeah which which seems like this is a very big budget complicated movie to be starting to improvise but there, like the scene where he but his his best friend is the screenwriter uh sam the screenwriter played by a wonderful alan garfield yeah his his best friend is he's always there and he's always like they're always arguing about scenes and they're they're talking about i guess they're they there's the one scene where there's the kind of the road thing about dropping after it, cause it's a world war one story and they want to drop some boots from a plane. And he, and then Eli goes crazy and says, they already did that in a movie called wings, you know, and he wants something different. So he's like improvising on the spot. He's like, we got to do something. And then come up with the idea of dancing on the, on the wings of the plane, you know, but I think that happens in movies too, where they see something's not really working. You know, I mean, I could see, I could, even with a big budget, production you even with films that are planned out to the to, to the inch it's like 
um, you still see improvisation like that where they, somebody comes up with an idea and says, well, why don't we do it this way instead? You know, it does happen. So oh, I don't I think that, it's that but, wild. But yeah. To go from dropping boots on, <laughs> dropping boots on a field to walking out on the wing of a plane and dancing. And the Charleston. Yeah. Yes. It is such a ridiculous thing that you kind of wonder what an audience in the movie theater would be thinking. Obviously, we don't know exactly. what the finished product look like, looks like, but it just seems like it would be such a reality-breaking moment in the movie that it looks like they're trying to make. It feels at times that he's making almost like a, another version of Catch-22. Okay. Because the, 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 book, the book that this movie is based on, even though they only use the central metaphor from the book for, the, for this film, the original book came out around the same time as Catch-22. It almost feels like this is maybe the, the I, I don't know about, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know if the story in there um, had something, maybe it was inspired by Joseph Heller's book, I don't know. But I, I, I wonder if that has like something that carried over from that. Because it would have been the same time, you know, similar anti-war films, so, or stories. Yeah, because it does seem even before things start to really really change in Eli's vision of the movie that he is creating at times it looks like a very a very harrowing World War One movie and then you've got the scene where that big stunt scene we already mentioned where uh, Cameron is running across the rooftops and he falls into like he falls off a building and he falls through a roof of a lower building below onto a bed where two uh, like a German soldier is making or yeah making love with in the middle of a whorehouse and it's the middle of a whorehouse and they lift him up and they're like they're they're lifting him up and throwing beer at him and it's just like it's a such a crazy wild moment that it seems like he's already trying to sneak in some of that kind of maybe countercultural ridiculousness into the movie You, you talked about um alan garfield in this movie as the screenwriter who is is just completely put upon the entire time is always yes. complaining about what's being changed and Eli is just kind of I mean he's toying with him. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's toying with everybody in this movie. You get the the great payoff at the end where they're talking about what kind of <laughs> gesture she can make at the end at his grave at the soldier that she's fell in love with and she's an old woman now. Uh, what kind of gesture she can make at his grave. And he brings out this vintage animatronic, like a little clockwork toy of a woman, yeah. like very yeah, vintage looking, like yeah. kind of ribald, ribald scene where it's just like a little wind up toy. It's this girl on a swing and the and a bear and they kind of like- With her legs spread. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, they With her legs spread. look like, like there's a sexual component there. Anyway, it's yes. so silly. And they kind of make fun of him for just a minute. And then Eli has that great moment where he's like, oh, welcome to the same movie. Like they're finally on the same yes. page. At, about how ridiculous the same movie, Stan. it was a good scene well i wanted to go i did want to go back to the beginning of the film briefly okay. because it would be hard to do a complete rundown of this film and i wouldn't want to do that because i don't want to give away surprises for any you know i don't want to give away big surprises for a lot of the viewers because a lot of the enjoyment of this film depends on you learning things as you go along because the point of the film so we don't, you don't know what Cameron's crime is until deep, deep into the film. And the point of not knowing it is you're supposed to get as paranoid about, the, about Cameron and whether he's done something truly awful that is irredeemable 
you're supposed to feel paranoid about that. In addition to him being paranoid about everything else in the movie. It's a layer that you need to have on there to watch the film. Um, but the film itself, I don't want to go through it note by note, but I do want to mention the opening shot of the film, which is this extended sort of Rube Goldbergian kind of thing. It basically, it, it, plays, it plays with your sense of reality from the very first shot of the film, because it's a shot of a turkey buzzard, or you know, people will perceive it as a vulture, but it was a turkey buzzard. And you see it, the next shot you see is a close-up of a dog panting heavily with its head on a road. And you're thinking, oh, the vulture is gonna try to eat the dog, the dog's dying. And then the camera pulls back. You see a car drive past the dog. And then you realize the dog's just laying there because it's a hot day. And then the camera keeps going. It follows the cop car. And then it keeps moving character to character until you eventually get the camera. It's not a single tracking shot, but it is almost that, you know, the way they do it. Immediately, it gives you the specter of death in the very first moment of the film and then takes it away. And then, <laughs> and then this kind of plays with you after that. But I thought that was very interesting that they do that from the start. That whole scene, you said it was kind of Rube Goldbergian. It is constructed in a way, like all of the things that we introduced to, we are introduced to in that first scene that seem unconnected at first, all kind of play a part in Cameron's escape as he's in this little diner area and yes. the cops are filling up the diner to arrest him. But everything is kind of a cause and effect and it ends with Cameron finally yes. getting away. It is another part of this movie where I was like, I wasn't quite sure what was going on the first time I saw it. It took another viewing to be like, oh, okay. I, I see how everything is connected here. Uh, right. This is a, definitely a movie I think requires multiple viewings. I mean- Yeah, absolutely. If you're planning to figure it out or enjoy it, yeah, you need to watch it multiple times. You're not gonna just get it all in one move, in one viewing. And I think it is enjoyable on the first viewing. I, I did watch it a second time before we decided to do this. And then I was like, oh, well, I'll watch it again. And I watched it again after that. Like I found the, the experience fun. There is a sense, sense of fun to this. Like the music is really jaunty. Peter O'Toole just is, seems like he's having the time of his life in every scene. Steve Railsback, as he said, is kind of like raw nerve that is always just like a live wire that is compelling. Um, Barbara Hershey brings a lot of depth to it. She's, uh, you know, she's great in the role. So it, it, there are, the movie is pleasurable, even if you are a little confused, which you probably will be even after multiple viewings. If you're anything like me, that is. So watching, watching this film several times lately, since the last time I watched it was probably about 15 years ago. Um, something has happened in my life where I am now more deeply connected to this film than I was before. And I think that's bringing a lot of pleasure to me um, because since we moved to California, Jen and I, we haven't gotten to a lot of the state, but we found areas that we really liked. We go to La Jolla, California quite a lot. And especially over the last three or four years, we've been going to a La Jolla and Catalina a lot. And we love both places, uh, but La Jolla uh, by the, by the ocean, there's a particular spot that we go to quite a lot. It's the children's beach that's there. And you can see sea lions. Well, at the children's beach, you just see seals usually. Down the walkway a bit, you see a bunch of sea lions in, in another area. And that, that's an entirely different thing. We've been there quite a lot. We know the view off the ocean. And so that's in my head now over the last few years. So I watched The Stuntman 
and we're in the opening sequence and they show Cameron walking along. And at one point he's walking in an area that's near the Hotel Del Coronado, which is the incredible hotel that they use in the film. That's in San Diego. But then the film cuts and he's looking at a painting and behind the painting is the shoreline off of La Jolla, which I recognized instantly. I said, did they film this in La Jolla? I had no idea that they had. And I looked it up, sure enough, filmed in La Jolla, filmed in Del Coronado. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And so <laughs> I said, I can't believe that. And I had to go back and watch it again. And like, and then I realized that the entire battle sequence, that strafing sequence and, 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 the, and the, uh, the battle after it is all on the children's beach where I have walked. I have been sitting above it watching seals. I know this beach very, very well. That is the seal beach. That is the children's beach. And so I went apeshit. <laughs> and, uh, and Jen has never watched this movie as far as I know. I think she maybe, maybe watched it once, but not with me. But um, I said, watch this part of the movie. And I, I didn't tell her anything about it. I put it on and she goes, they're in La Jolla. Same <laughs> sequence. She went, they're in La Jolla. And she goes, and that's the Coronado Hotel in, in, in San Diego where we've not stayed, but we really want to. I just went wild. So now I feel super connected to this film in a way I never had before. It, it just thrills me. <laughs> it's, like, it, it's, just, it's just a little something that added to the film for me greatly. There's a documentary that's released separately from the film on DVD, and it's called The Sinister Saga of the Making of the Stuntman. I have this, and so you have not seen this documentary. No, But I it's a feature-length documentary directed by the same director richard rush uh who's also the guy who made freebie and the bean and he made uh i think psych out he made a bunch of films a couple films for corman back in the 60s a couple biker films also um worked with nicholson a few times at one point he owned the rights to one flew over the cuckoo's nest but it wasn't going to happen with him so he ended up selling the rights to michael douglas who of course, won the Oscar for it. But yeah, Richard Rush also directed the documentary about the making of his own film. And he released that like years later. But the film is, the documentary itself, it's kind of crazy in its own right. Um, it's really cheesy. He has crazy effects in it. And he's using those effects to illustrate his kind of illusion and reality thing. But he does talk about every aspect of the making of the film. And um, there was a really interesting piece where he, where he was talking about the, the, the Del Coronado Hotel and the filming of the scene. So in the movie, we see Eli talking about, you know, about the palm trees that are surrounding the hotel when the hotel is supposed to be in France in World War One, And he's going bonkers because, you know, you know, how am I supposed to film this scene with palm trees everywhere? He is, he's going nuts and cursing up a storm. The interesting thing is Richard Rush had the same feeling when he was making this film. And he's like, why did we choose this hotel? There are palm trees everywhere. How are we going to film World War I scenes with <laughs> these palm trees? He realized, he had the epiphany that he doesn't have to worry about it. It was Eli Cross's problem. So the director within his film has to figure out how to shoot around the palm trees, not the director of the actual film itself. And I found that hilarious. And uh, even in the documentary, Peter O'Toole is interviewed in it. 
and he and he brings that up. He's like, he's like, yeah. So he left it to my character to figure out how to shoot around the palm trees. Well, and I just find that fascinating, you know, that he would just like give up. He said, I'm not going to figure it out, you know. It does look like there is a in-print Severin DVD for the stuntman that has that documentary on it. So I might have to yes, that up. Yeah, there's a, there's a recent one, but it, yeah, I haven't bought it. I, I had bought the film separately, so. Yeah, it does sound a little bit like it was a, a hectic film shoot, which I can imagine. It, the movie is right chaotic. Well, it's chaotic, but the, the uh, and that's kind of what the fun part about the documentary is that the release was chaotic as well because they basically had to go city to city and convince the reviewer to review their film. And of course they kept getting these stellar reviews. And so they would take it to the next city and they'd get a good review, trying to convince their own studio that they need to release this film wide because the studio did not want to release it. And so they kept doing this, but you know, the studio, they kept butting heads with, with the studio heads. And eventually they got enough good notices that they were starting to get awards recognition. So they, they made a deal with the studio. They said, if we get, we'll, we'll release it, we'll release it wider if you get Oscar nominations. And they got three Oscar nominations. So the studio said, okay, we'll release it in three cities. <laughs> so oh. yeah, they, and eventually, eventually it did go wide, you know, after, after the Oscars uh, buzz came out and all that. So they did eventually go wide, but yeah, they were getting screwed over by their studio big time. Um, and so it never made the money it probably could have made. Though I have a hard time figuring that this movie would have made a lot of money. And regardless, though they did make decent money in the in their tour version of it, they were making money in every city that they went to. Uh, my my impression of this movie, not that it's it was a huge hit, it was that it was. Um, I mean, this movie is pretty well regarded. I feel like this is like this is considered a major yeah. film these days. Yeah, they got they got nothing but good reviews. I mean, practically, uh, Danny Perry doesn't like it. It's in one of his cult movie books, and it it might actually be a bad movie, but I don't recognize it. You know? as, so, as somebody who came to it later in life, I think I think the first time I saw it, I was already living down here. So it's been within the last six years is the first time I saw this movie. Sure. So, as somebody that I would have, you know, somebody who came to this movie in his thirties. I still, I do think it's a good movie. I think, I mean, I don't know. I, this movie, it is hard to judge whether they are successful at what they're trying to do because it's so unclear sometimes what is supposed to be going on. Yeah. But that, that also seems to be the point. So I, I'm leaning towards there being, they are successful and this is a good movie. Yeah, but I think I, so. I'll... I totally understand not being keyed in to what is going on not being like in sync in a way that, well, I, I can just understand not being on this movie's wavelength. I, I found it delightful every time I watched it, but like I said, I still feel myself being held away from the movie. Like there's something I, I haven't unlocked and I'm not sure if I ever will. Yeah. I feel I've unlocked it from the start, but I don't think I'll ever totally get the film. And I don't know if I want to. I, I I don't know at this point if, I mean, I, I you know, if I make it to 80, I may watch this film and go, and somebody will say something. I'll go, yeah, you're right. That's, none of this makes any sense. You know? <laughs> but I I think logical, I think logical uh, 
concerns that would bother you in a regular film don't in this film where it can't be a concern here. It plays by its own rules. And uh, I think you either go with it or you don't. And for me, it's like, it's, it's like Perry not being a part of the cult for this film. Well, uh, nice that you stopped by, but uh, those of us that are going to enjoy this film, I guess we're still here. I honestly don't know a lot about Richard Rush. Uh, I've seen his movies. That's about it. One thing I do definitely know, and you might want to drop this in, Eli Cross is uh, a pseudonym that Richard Rush used a couple of times as a screenwriter in the late 60s, early 70s. So he definitely sees himself as the O'Toole character. So yeah. Eli, Eli Cross is a stand-in for Richard Rush in, a many, in many ways in the film. He definitely identifies with him. Eli doesn't just control his set in this film. He seems to control the entire town because he's yeah. got the, even though, because there's the Alex Rocco character who we haven't mentioned. The Alex no, Rocco I, 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 I was trying sheriff. to think of a way to, I was trying to think of a way to bring him in because he's another really fun character. Yeah, he's, he is um, constantly battling Eli, trying to get him out of town because, you know, Eli's running roughshod over the resources of the town and over, you know, tying up the roads and tying up the streets. And yet all Eli has to do is throw a couple of the cops into small roles in the film and he gets his way. You know, he's he definitely can convince the sheriff into doing anything, including ignoring the, you know, possible murder that happened in the set of the film. So what happened to Bert? Because they never find his body. Um, they, they, they're still looking for it. And I couldn't remember... Like after my first viewing and I got to the end, I was like, what did happen? They never, do they ever explain it? Is, is, or is he, is I don't think like, they do. They don't in the movie. They I don't. don't. I was kind of thinking like, is this the ending of the movie? Kind of like the ending of the game where we find out everything has been a lie just to like drag him along on this journey. That that's not where the movie goes. But I, I, I also was just like kind of thinking what did happened to Bert since they never find the body and they're dragging the river and there there's a massive search for the body which I guess they would have called off after <laughs> so in a way yeah. Eli Cross may have actually killed this man who could have could have still been alive drifting down the river or washed up somewhere I I think they had Bert's body and they just made made you know short work of it is what I'm thinking oh. somebody did yeah possibly but, I think they just, I think they secreted it away. And then by the time the cops got there and started searching, it was long gone. So, but I kept expecting there to be some revelation about what had happened to Bert. Cause it, yeah. it seemed really bizarre that he would like, that he would not make it out of that car or he would make it out of that car, but not alive when they pull the car and, out and, of the. And, and, and that might be a concern if Cameron needed to know what happened to Bert. But because the film is entirely through his perspective, he may not be thinking about that. He mm. knows Bert died, but we're only we're only learning things that Cameron learns, that Cameron sees. I know we as an audience want a payoff. We want we want to know what happened to every character, you know, that has been introduced. We want to if the character disappears. You're like, what happened to that character? I don't think that's a concern for Cameron. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. So, uh, do you have anything else in your notes? Anything that you want to bring up? No, I think that's good. I think we've I think we've pretty much covered it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll just take our next break, our last break of the show. We'll be back with the last segment, our top fives of the week. Uh -huh. 
All right, and we're back. So we're gonna do our top fives kind of based on the same theme, movie set madness. I am going to go first. I'm gonna go with uh, maybe an obvious choice. I'm, I think the most recent movie on my list, the Coen brothers, Hail Caesar, which is maybe not the best movie of their career, but it's certainly one of the nope. funniest I felt. I, I really enjoyed it on a moment to moment basis. I think it's going to take maybe some rewatches to to get used to that that typical kind of Cohen shaggy dog ending where it, like this one in particular I felt like it was leading up to something and it kind of doesn't lead up to what you you are expecting in a way that they do quite a bit but for some reason well it didn't, definitely did not disappoint me I just kind of left it going yeah that was pretty good but it stuck with me a bit like there's parts in it that I I still chuckle about that's that it's a good choice i i i enjoyed the film um didn't think it was entirely successful but it did some crazy stuff in it that i definitely admired and you know me i i, I love the cohen's immensely so even when it's not their top tier it's still way more interesting than a lot of films by other filmmakers so oh, plus the Cohen brothers are so are, are filmmakers who seem to pack so much meaning into every film that they do into like so much so much subtext into every scene that hail caesar is almost entirely just a surface pleasure movie like what you see is what you get yeah in a way that like that can be disappointing when you're not like you're expecting something that the like the sort of thing that cohen's normally do but it's still right i found just as as just as rich, maybe just not. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a failure, but even their failures are successes to a certain degree. Yeah. Because they're just so, they're so just dense with, you know, kind of fun, fun with, fun with filmmaking, not necessarily fun itself, but fun with filmmaking. Like they're always trying interesting things. And I, I just, yeah, I admire them immensely. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, what do you got for your first pick? Well, I had a really hard time with this list at first because I was thinking about the list of all time, you know, of just my list of favorite movies. And so many of them are about movie making. But I get kind of like tired of these lists when it's just really predictable movies, you know, like, you know, um, even my favorite film of all time, King Kong, the original King Kong is about movie making to a certain you know it is a filmmaker trying to you know you know find find the discovery for his next big project and so i i wanted to pick some that were just a little kind of off kilter for the most part my number five pick is um the first duty musical it's a 1976 film directed by bruce kimmel um, who also did a, a Leslie Nielsen sci-fi parody called The Creature Wasn't Nice. I don't know if you've seen that one either. No, not I nearly as good. These. Yeah, uh, the first Nooney musical, I, I saw it dozens, much like The Stuntman, I saw it dozens and dozens of times when I was a teenager because it was on cable and it was kind of occupied that space between almost being an actual porn film and just being, you know, a really silly comedy. Um, it's not a porn film at all. There's a lot of nudity in, in it. There's a lot of dirty jokes. Yeah, it's not a porno, but it's a film about the making of a porno by a failing studio. And uh, it's the way that this young, desperate head of the studio kind of gets the backers to side with him 
um, by having the audacious notion to add musical numbers to their nudie film. And so it's, I mean, it's completely juvenile. It has songs like Lesbian Butch Dyke and Let Him Eat Cake, But Let Me Eat You. You know, it's, uh, it, it, but it's all done in like these big, you know, well not big, it's a low budget film, but these production numbers, uh, there's one called Dancing Dildos and it's these guys in dildo costumes and they're on stage and these Southern bells come out and they push the buttons on the dildos and they all start doing this kind of like uh, kind of sidestep shuffle all together while they're buzzing, you know, and it's ridiculous. <laughs> and at one point, one of the dildos gets knocked down and then all that, of course, leads to a domino effect and all of them are get knocked down and they're all kicking their legs because they, they can't get out of the costume. So they're kicking their legs and buzzing on the ground. You know, it's so silly. I love this film so much as a teenager that I actually recorded the audio on it because I couldn't get enough of the songs and I wanted a I wanted a, a legit soundtrack album so I recorded the entire movie and then cut the songs out you know and, and made my own little soundtrack album I mean I just adored it and it's it's uh, it got Cindy Williams from Laverne and Shirley in one of the leads and, and Ron Howard even makes a cameo appearance it's it's uh, just a ridiculous movie. I still absolutely love it. What's your number four? Well, I'm I'm not ranking these. I, I like to make that clear. I just I, I kind of feel bad about. Well, the I am. So okay, I feel bad sometimes about the obviousness of my list. I feel like a lot of my choices will be obvious to other people. I, I kind of treat these as you know first first thought, best thought. Like whatever just pops into my mind that I want to talk about, I kind of go with. Sure. And I don't I don't think about it too much. But that being said, my next one is one I just rewatched recently, first time in a long time, uh, Shadow of the Vampire with Willem Dafoe and- Oh, Jack yeah. Kovic. It was going to be part of our discussion for uh, our Nosferatu episode. I think that was episode four. Uh, right. But, but it's not available anywhere. It's out of print and it's not streaming. And we just, we, we thought people wouldn't be able to watch it if they hadn't seen it before. So we went with something else. I, I thought the movie really held up. I, I have a, a couple of issues with it. But putting aside the historical inaccuracies with regards to characters and their biographies, I really like, obviously, Willem Dafoe's performance is amazing. I, I like Fantastic. I like the movie itself doesn't mimic the style of a silent film as much as I kind of remembered from my theatrical viewing, but it does integrate the actual footage of Nosferatu in very interesting ways. Um, I really liked how how all of that was melded, and it, it, in particular, Willem Dafoe's in introduction to the movie is really like mysterious and creepy and funny at the same time. Anyway, it's a movie I really enjoy. It's it's a really fun movie. Yeah, it's a terrific film. I I, I really would love to see it again because I I honestly have only seen it once, and that was when it came out in theaters, and um, I really enjoyed it. I I. You know, and I should have bought it when it was out on DVD, but I did not. So, yeah, I regret um, because I, yeah, I'm a big Defoe fan and a, and, and a big Nosferatu fan. So, uh, yeah, I really should have bought it and I did not. I'm a little bit surprised that you didn't, but I'm also very surprised it's not available anywhere. I'm not quite sure why. Considering the 20th anniversary or we just passed the 20th anniversary of it, you would have thought that a special edition would have come out or something, but. I don't know if there's a rights issue going on or what. It's strange. Plus the pedigree of it, you know, it, I mean, it's produced by Nicolas Cage. He was going to star in it. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a mystery we need to look into. But <laughs> so my number four pick is "Never Give a Sucker an Even Break" from 1941, and and that's a a very nonsensical and rather fantastic comedy by uh, W.C. Fields. This was like the last uh, film. This is kind of him at the end of his film stardom. It was his last lead role in a film. And it was his last film with the Universal Studios where he made a string of hits in the late 30s and early 40s. Not as good as The Bank Dick, which is his best film. Uh, not my favorite of his films. Uh, that's That would be uh, uh, You Can't Cheat an Honest Man. The plot involves Fields writing an impossible screenplay, right? That he shares with his studio boss and uh, played by Franklin Pangborn. Pangborn. And uh, it goes into these wild flights of fantasy. He, he, he can't, there's no way this film could be made. And Fields is just so over the top with everything in the film that he knows that there's not a chance, you know, the film's going to get made. It, 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 has, it has him taking a flight in an airliner that has an open air observation deck. <laughs> so he, he drops his liquor bottle and he jumps from the plane. <laughs> And he lands in this giant bird's nest, you know, on the top of this mountain and has this romance with Margaret Dumont from the Marx Brothers films. This is all within the film, the film within the film. In the meantime, while this story is going on, you have all, all these scenes back in the, in the studio of films being shot and a musical being made. And it's just craziness everywhere. It's not craziness on the level of Hell's a Poppin', but it is just, you know, kind of backstage wackiness. The main thing with this film is that there's a giant chase scene at the end of it that is, I feel it's like the best car chase scene pre-Bullet in Steve McQueen. It's it's ridiculous and uh, you know, sped up cars and fire engines and just things crashing left and right into things. And it's all W.C. Fields trying to get this woman to the hospital to have her baby. And of course, you know, he's drunk all the time. So it's just an insane finale to the film. It's kind of Reminds me of it's a mad, 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 mad world's finale to a large degree. Um, so uh, if you're not opposed to uh, W.C. Fields, because I know he's kind of problematic these days, uh, this film is way up there on his, you know, in, in his uh, filmography. Nice. Uh, okay, so my next pick, my number three, is The Woman Chaser, based on the Charles Williford novel. It's got uh, Patrick Warburton. He stars as a uh, he's a used car salesman who his I think his father-in-law I can't I haven't seen it in a while so I can't remember the relationship exactly has a connection in the film industry and so he uses his clout to film his perfect like this dream project of his his which is about a truck driver who accidentally runs down a small child and he he makes the movie the whole, the movie is about how he makes it it's exactly a his perfect piece of art. It is exactly what he wanted to do. And the studio can't do anything with it because it is 65 minutes long. It's not long enough to be a feature. It's too long to be on television. And so their idea is like, well, we're just going to edit like 10, 15 minutes out of it and we'll make it, we'll put it on television. And he cannot ab abide that. Like he, he starts to really spiral because he can't it, like his movie is perfect. He can't add a minute. He can't take a minute out and he can't abide anybody changing it. I'm not going to mention what happens from there, but it, it is written. Okay. Based, it's based on a novel by Charles Williford who wrote the Monty Hellman or the book for the Monty Hellman movie, Cockfighter, uh, Miami Blues. 
it, it's very much in that vein of like very deplorable men, very kind of seedy, but also ridiculous in a way that is is heightened and kind of funny as well as being a little bit disturbing. I can see people having a problem with some of the stuff that happens in this movie, although it is funny. It's an idea that's really stuck with me, like how, how devoted he is to just making this perfect singular piece of art that nobody knows what to do with. It, it, it's kind of hard to call it a tragedy because of how awful he is as a person, but it, it is still like a, such a recognizable uh, goal that he has and such a, a perfectly realized goal in the movie that I, I think about it all the time, actually. I am overjoyed because you have picked a film that I have not only not seen, huh. I have never heard of this film. Oh, wow. And well, I've got it on my list already. I, I, I just looked it up. It's on, I think, Prime or something. Yeah, it was on, so, it was on Netflix like 10 yeah. years ago. When I, that's how I saw it. Yeah, I thought, I just think, I think it's on Prime here. So yeah, I'm going to be watching this probably within the next week. So I'm really interested um, to hear what you think about it. I like this movie a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds right up my alley. Uh, so yeah, I'm 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 excited about this. I, I I'm overjoyed actually. So. <laughs> oh, I'm, you know I'm, how hard it is for me to find movies I haven't seen. All right, so uh, my number three is Blake Edwards' Sob. I I don't know if you've seen it there. Have you seen this film? I have not. I have not. I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> it's an amazing movie the initial critical opinion on this film was really divided um it was nominated for a writer's guild of america award for best comedy but it was also nominated for a razzie award for worst screenplay <laughs> um it was nominated for a razzie for worst director and a golden globe award for best motion motion picture so um i think it's marvelous i have been in love with this film since it came out i saw it in a theater and, and back in 1981 um, it was like one of the early R-rated films I got to actually see in a theater. And uh, um, I just like laughed my ass off. It was so good. Um, has It has uh, Richard Mulligan from Soap playing this insane director of this uh, musical that's potentially going to fail. Um, it, it, like the studio is not backing him at all. His wife in the film is played by Blake Edwards' real life wife at the time, Julie Andrews. And it's this goody two-shoes film that Richard Mulligan has made. And like you would expect from a Julie Andrews uh, musical. And, and the studio knows it's a piece of crap. Everybody knows it's a piece of crap. Julie Andrews' character knows it's a piece of crap. It's going to bomb huge. And so Richard Mulligan is going nuts. And then he hits upon the idea that um, he's got to have his wife, Julie Andrews, <laughs> bare her breasts in the film. And so... When she does, all hell breaks loose, both in the director's life and in the studio system politics. I mean, it just, things go crazy. Um, this film has an incredible supporting cast. There's William Holden and Larry Hagman and Robert Bunn. Tons of actors in it that you know. And, and, uh, and, and best of all is Robert Preston as this kind of vitamin shot wielding doctor who just has all these witty asides all through the film. He's, he's amazing. And the next film he would make with Blake Edwards would be Victor Victoria. And he would be nominated for, for a uh, Best Supporting Actor Oscar uh, in that film. And he's the same. And I mean, if you like Robert Preston, this is definitely a film you need to see. Um, uh, the, the, this film may strike some as being in very poor taste because uh, 
it's really ferocious and it's savaging of Hollywood. And it goes to some pretty extreme lengths as far as, you know, as taste is concerned. Um, but uh, it's, it's spot on hilarious and it's many very best moments. Um, I cannot, if you like Blake Edwards comedies and you haven't seen this one, you really need to. Okay, well, everything you're mentioning right now is going on my watch list. And like you, my watch list is vast. So yeah, it, it, like I will, I will be, definitely put it on there. So my next pick is a Canadian film. I can't, I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name. Uh, John Pies, Pays, uh, uh, the director. And um, I think he, he wrote it as well. It's about this guy who, he rents a, an apartment above a garage. There's a precocious little girl that lives in the house as well that kind of befriends him. And he's trying to hold up and write a, a screenplay. And he's good at writing endings and beginnings, but he can't write middles. And so the movie kind of visualizes his attempts to start um, the movie he's writing several times. It's always a little bit repetitive, but a di bit different. Every time it visualizes it, it's kind of a different style of film. Sometimes it's an action, a comedy, a noir. The movie itself starts to become a bit more of a noir. Did I even say the title? It's called Crime Wave. No, you did not say Crime Wave, but I knew what film you were talking about. Okay, so the movie is Crime Wave. And I, I watched it on Prime a few years ago and I thought it was something else when I was started to watch it. I didn't know what it was. And I, I saw the title Crime Wave and I thought it was a different movie and I started to watch it. I'm like, well, this isn't what I expected, but I'm very- You thought charmed. it was the Sam Raimi film. Yes, I did. But I was very charmed. I was very charmed. Uh, because the they movie. came out the same year. Oh. Both right. of them are 1985 films. Uh, but anyway, no, I, I, find, I found the movie to be charming. I, I got a, I, I, I got a lot of enjoyment about out of how he would he would start every movie and he would describe his characters as being from the north and kind of like the the rhythm of that dialogue and just kind of how um, how how some a little bit shoddy but also stylized the movie is the movie looks um, that's a fun one I'm I was trying to pick one that maybe there was a chance you hadn't seen because I know my other choices you've definitely seen. Yeah, no, that that one actually falls right into my wheelhouse. So I, I've definitely seen that one, um, but because it's older, and so I had more of a chance to have seen it. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I enjoyed the film. I don't think I enjoy it. I've seen some really just stellar reviews for it from some people, and I don't totally buy into it. But I really think it's an interesting film, and I like it. I do like the film. Um, I'm just not as boffo about it as a lot of people are, and. Uh, and and myself, I personally prefer the Sam Raimi crime wave, but that's that's me. So yeah, no, uh, I'm, that's I'm on. I'm that's the Coen Brothers and Raimi, though. I'm definitely on the same page as you. I like the movie, but it is. I think it's funny that there's two films with the same title from the same year. You know, yeah. and both of them are, in a way, kind of very similar as far as style goes. You know. Yeah, and and I'm gonna say I was I'm on I'm on the same page. I liked the movie. I am not like over the moon about it. I think it's an interesting movie, which is why I put it on this because it's a movie I would like people to see. Uh, so what do you got? What's your, what's your next one? So my number two is, uh, it's a more obvious choice, but I just really wanted to rewatch this film because <laughs> I'd been a while. Um, but my number two is uh, Frank Oz's Bowfinger from yes. 1999. 
I've decided to include this film here because it's not only a razor sharp satire of filmmaking and of Hollywood, but it's also about, you know, weirdo fringe cults and celebrity obsession in general. It's also a hell of a lot of fun. I, um, this is, I think, one of Oz's best, you know, films. I, it might be his best film, I think, personally. Uh, and, and also for Eddie Murphy. I, I, I um, as, as down as I am on, you know, latter-day Eddie Murphy films until, you know, until like Dolomite, his Dolomite film came along. I, I just think Murphy is fantastic in this film, playing playing this dual role of Kit Ramsey, who is the really kind of, so uh, much like SOB, uh, this film kind of stabs and skewers Hollywood targets left and right. And like SOB and the stuntman, the driving force behind this insanity is an obsessed director. Uh, this time though, Steve Martin's Bobby Bowfinger is, uh, he's, he's never had a taste of success. And, uh, but he has this kind of willing crew of misfits and he's able to finagle and worm his way into a possible situation with a studio head. Uh, and so he takes, he, he kind of takes a shot at it. Uh, he has to convince uh, uh, Eddie Murphy's Kit Ramsey uh, to, uh, to film this uh, really ridiculous sci-fi script called Chubby Rain. <laughs> and um, Ramsey, of course, does not want anything to do with it. So what Martin does is he films it on the sly. They follow Ramsey around uh, with his crew and they kind of interject themselves into his life, performing this, the screenplay, Chubby Rain, and just getting his reactions, you know. So people run up to him and act crazy. And then he just reacts. And then he convinces his crew that Ramsey is method acting. So we're not, you're not supposed to say anything about the film to him because he doesn't, he doesn't want you to do that. And so it's like, he's conning his own crew in addition to pulling a con on Ramsey and the studio. So, and then eventually Ramsey's brother, Jif gets involved with the group and comes on as, as, a, as, a, as his quote unquote stunt double and stand in. And, uh, and Jif is an entirely different person kit ramsey he's he's like nerdy and he has braces and he like laughs kind of weird and um and, and and has a little bit of a lisp also and uh and murphy is just fantastic in both roles uh, the energy of the film is very manic i i just feel it it's kind of an underrated film i know a lot of people like it but i feel like it's never really gotten its due and i think it's about time it did but I and i, I know remember... you love this film I rem I rem I love this film. I love Bowfinger, and I remember you're right. It kind of was not. I don't know if it was quite ignored, but people just didn't really give it credit. It didn't get great reviews. In my memory, yeah. anyway, I haven't looked it up. I know it was successful, <clears throat> but yeah, I I just but think it should loom larger. It's you know, it, it's than it does. Such a funny movie. There's so many laugh out loud moments in that movie. There is a joke that. I still think about and kind of laugh about in when he's trying to convince his crew that it is okay to film this, or he's trying to convince his quote unquote producer that it's okay to film this movie without uh, Kit Ramsey knowing, without his uh, permission. And he said, he said, I mean, I don't know, the, remember the exact line, but where he says like, the movies are made like this all the time. Do you know Tom Cruise didn't know he was in that vampire movie for six months? And it, it's such a funny idea. Just the, <laughs> yeah, the, the Tom Cruise just lives like that normally. 
<laughs> and, and, and that's also a, kind of a clever tie-in to because there is a cult in the film called Mindhead, which is clearly absolutely Scientology. Yeah. yeah. And I still to this day, anytime I like run into Scientology stuff anywhere, I still go, oh, there's there's the Mindhead building. <laughs> you know, I mean, just, you know, even though, of course, they would sue over it or something like that, you know, but but I, I just uh, man, I just love this movie. It's so funny. It's great. OK, so for my last one, I am going to go with one. I know you've seen this one. I know we've talked about this. I think you might have turned me on to this movie back in the day. Uh, Barbarian Sound Studio. Um, I don't uh, somebody else turned me on to it. Um, yeah, I can't remember ex- either. It just seems like something that you would have told me about. Uh, the movie is Toby Jones is a very kind of nebbishy, uh, neurotic. He, he's very shy, uh, fussy, I guess. Also, uh, he's a sound engineer. He's an English sound engineer. And he goes to work at a studio in Italy to work on, you know, do sound for what he thinks is a movie, a, like a drama about horses, right? I can't remember exactly, but he finds out it's a giallo that he is going to be working on. And he is very freaked out by uh, horror and blood and the stuff that he has to do. And he starts to kind of lose his mind and the movie becomes a little bit like a giallo, uh, not quite a giallo, but like a, like a, a surreal Italian horror movie in a way. Um, it's right. just got a it's got a setting that I really love. I like I love giallos. I just like the look and the atmosphere of that movie and that time period that it takes place in. It's it's one I think I think people know about it. I'm like, I'm not really like I'm not really talking about this like it's a undiscovered gem that nobody's heard of. But it, it's a movie I think um, I think more people should know about. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really really interesting and i love it I'm, I'm not saying interesting to kind of dismiss it a little bit um it's a very oh man i don't know the word for it <laughs> but it's a very kind of different take on on a horror film and uh and i just really thought it was fascinating yes fascinating is, is a good word because it's one of those movies i kind of associate my appreciation of it with the feeling and the mood that the movie the very movie much evokes, so more than actually just talking about what happens in the movie because what i what i what stuck with me was just there's the, a creepiness yeah the yeah. creepiness and just the mood of that movie is what stuck with me yeah that, that's, uh, no that's an excellent choice okay well thank you so that's my it's, that's my it's five an excellent you, choice and i'm glad i may have directed you to it <laughs> you you <laughs> You, well, my my other choice, I was going to mention the editor, which you definitely turned me on. I was thinking that at the same time I was going, you know, if I didn't have what I have for number one here, I really should have gone with the editor. I was just thinking about that while you were talking about Barbarian. I was going, why didn't I pick the editor? I love the editor. Well, let, I'm, I'm not cutting this part out. So that'll be our bonus dual recommendation that that's a well that'll work because my number one is a bit of a cheat because it's actually two films oh well that's fine but but they're both very short films so there are two warner brothers cartoons uh oh. duck amuck from 1953 and the scarlet pumpernickel from 1950 both directed by the legendary chuck jones 
that, so that, way before I, I saw it. any. What's that? Oh, I was just going to say, I will allow it. Those are very okay. good choices. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, way before I saw any of the films mentioned in this podcast, I saw these shorts in my youth on the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show on Saturday morning television over and over and over again. Every Saturday, you know, you know, for years and years and years, that's where I tuned, you know, before VHS. And so I, I saw these two shorts. One of them has a definite cut in it on, on Saturday morning television in the 70s. Uh, that um, which we'll discuss in a second, but uh, these were my earliest looks into the filmmaking process as a kid. Um, not that I really cared about it then, but their influence was like prime in my life. Uh, uh, Duck Amuck is for most of its running time. If you haven't seen it, it's a, it feels like it's a solo Daffy Duck short. He's walking through landscapes and and you know different settings, and he's walking and talking and singing songs and just being Daffy Duck. But there's this unseen animator who's changing his props and his costuming and even his body as he talks to the screen. So he gets erased and redrawn over and over and over again. Um, and always to the point where Daffy gets blown up or mangled in some way or ends up, you know, you know, falling into the ocean or hitting his head on something or being, you know, at one point he's he jumps from a plane with a parachute and the animator redraws the parachute as an anvil and of course you know yeah. he crashes to the ground um and at the end uh daffy is left in the dark and the camera pulls back to reveal bugs bunny has been messing with him the entire time and bugs turns the camera and he says ain't i a stinker as the ca cartoon iris is out it's like just great there's a sequel to it called rabbit rampage uh, from a couple years later, in which Daffy turns the tables on Bugs, but it's nowhere near as tight or as funny as this one. This was uh, this is one of Chuck Jones' I say top five cartoons. Um, and then the Scarlet Pumpernickel is another Daffy short, but he has a host of supporting stars in this one, including Porky Pig and Sylvester and Elmer Fudd and Henry Hawk and and uh, Mama Bear from the Three Bears series that Jones also did. It's a little more obscure um hardcore looney tunes fans know that series uh but uh much like never give a sucker an even break daffy is trying to convince the studio head to make his script into a film and this one is uh the script is a swashbuckler starring daffy as a kind of a would-be errol flynn type named the scarlet pumpernickel um but of course daffy keeps mangling the name and spitting and lisping and saying P -p -p pumpernickel yeah. um the uh the, and uh and of course sylvester takes his tackle on it later in the film too uh the uh the adventure is a uh is it, just it's got every swashbuckler cliche piled on top of each other and in in such a manic way that at the end of the his description of the film he's completely exhausted and kind of just kind of like in a heap on the on the ground and the studio had just kind of he's totally unimpressed and so daffy pulls out a gun and shoots himself through the hat <laughs> and, and then of course he says it's getting so you have to kill yourself to tell a story around here and uh when i was a kid the gunshot was cut out so you just you you heard a gunshot but you did not see you know and you that that was it and so you didn't get the payoff at the end but um this film was uh probably really more influential with me as an adult uh because uh, i got to co-write uh, a one-act stage version of the three musketeers and i definitely took the flavor of this one i mean it, i didn't use the story elements itself but when i was writing that this was totally in my head 
Um, and so, yeah, it's been it's just kind of a big thing with me through most of my life. Uh, I, I just love Chuck Jones and love, uh, love the Warner Brothers uh, series. And uh, um, yeah, absolutely my number one. Nice. Very good. I'm, I'm really very happy, actually, you chose those two. That, that those make very inspired choices. Well, uh, I think that's, I think that's going to do it for this week and this episode. Uh, Rick, I mean, it took way too long. I'm glad we finally got you on. I really want to thank you for being here. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, now, now I'm excited about doing more because uh, now I just feel like we're starting to kind of get kind of kind of get kind of kind of getting a flow here. So, uh, so uh, hopefully uh, we'll do one soon. Yes, definitely. I'm going to want you to be back on. Uh, we'll work it out. We'll talk about it off air, as they say. I want to thank everybody for listening. If you are enjoying the show, please go ahead and leave a review uh, wherever you get this. We, we are now on basically every podcast app. Yeah, rate and review. Tell your friends. If you want to follow along with any updates that I have on our socials, it is Two-Headed Pod at both Instagram and Twitter. And also there's a Facebook group or Facebook page if you want to uh, look and follow that as well. I post stuff throughout the week. Anyway, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week with a new guest body and a new couple of movies.